Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we focus on the trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer who is charged with the murder of George Floyd. The Office of Attorney General for Minnesota is Keith Ellison. Uh, They are overseeing the trial. Ellison is a former elected official who was part of the Congressional Black Caucus. The defense uh, for Chauvin is being backed by the police legal fund who are providing him with a dozen lawyers and a million dollars. Meanwhile, Minnesota has a long history of police-involved deaths with over 200 police-involved deaths in the past two decades. And although Minnesota is only 7% Black, Black people are 26% of police-involved deaths. These include Philando Castile in 2016 and Jamar Clark in 2015. But thus far, the only police officer in the state convicted of murder is Mohamed Noor, a Black officer who was found guilty of killing Justine Damon, a white woman. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives passed the George Floyd Policing Act, which bans racial and religious profiling, but it has yet to be passed in the Senate. Let us go now to a summary of opening statements on the trial that began on Monday, March 29th. On May 25th of 2020, Mr. Derek Chauvin betrayed this badge when he used excessive and unreasonable force upon the body of Mr. George Floyd, that he put his knees upon his neck and his back, grinding and crushing him until the very breath, no ladies and gentlemen, until the very life was squeezed out of him. And you will learn that Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19 year career. The use of force is not attractive, but it is a necessary component of policing. You will learn that he was well aware that Mr. Floyd was unarmed, that Mr. Floyd had not threatened anyone, that Mr. Floyd was in handcuffs. When you see these videos pulled back from afar, you will be able to see the Minneapolis police squad car rocking back and forth, rocking back and forth during this struggle. This was not an easy struggle. Can you describe what you saw of Mr. Floyd's condition as time progressed here? Um, the more that his the knee was blockly uh, on his neck uh, and shimmies were going on, the more you seen Floyd fade away and slowly fade away, and like the fish in the bag, you seen his eyes slowly, you know, pale out and again slowly roll to the back of his eyes. Well, you got to learn that it was about a counterfeit twenty dollar bill used at a convenience store. That's all. You will not hear any evidence that Mr. Floyd knew that it was fake or did it on purpose, that the police officers could have written him a ticket and let the court sort it out. Even if he did it on purpose, it was a minor offense, a misdemeanor. What was Mr. Floyd's actual cause of death? The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension, his coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline flowing through his body, all of which acted to further compromise an already compromised heart. This was, for example, not a fatal heart event. Uh, This was not, for example, a heart attack. 
you will learn uh, that there was no demonstrated injury whatsoever to Mr. Floyd's heart, as in a heart attack. And uh, following George Floyd's murder in May, on May 25, 2020, protests broke out across the United States and on every continent around the world. It is estimated that 26 million people participated in the protests. And now all eyes are on this trial, with many waiting to see if justice is possible for black people living in the United States. Justice itself seems to be on trial. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. And today, our guests focusing on the trial of the police officer who murdered uh, George Floyd are uh, Karen Kutzen, who is president of CWA Local 7250, who has been active in protests in solidarity with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. He is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Also, Mick Crenshaw, who was born and raised in Chicago and Minneapolis. He currently resides in Portland, Oregon, where they have been continued protests against the George Floyd murder. He is the Northwest Regional Director of Hip Hop Congress and the People's Attorney, Nana Jumphy, attorney, consultant, educator, activist, and president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. Let us go now to our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. A man who was among the onlookers shouting at a Minneapolis police officer to get off George Floyd's neck last May returns to the witness stand today. Donald Williams is a former wrestler who said he was trained in mixed martial arts, including chokeholds. Williams testified he thought former officer Derek Chauvin used a shimmying motion several times to increase pressure on Floyd's neck. He described seeing Floyd struggle for air and his eyes rolling back into his head, saying he saw Floyd slowly fade away. Police dispatcher Janice Scurry testified she saw part of Floyd's arrest unfolding via a city surveillance camera and was so disturbed that she called a duty sergeant. Scurry said she grew concerned because the officer's hadn't moved after several minutes, and she at first thought her video had frozen. My instincts were telling me that something's wrong. Something has not right. I don't know what, but something wasn't right. Scurry said in her call to the sergeant, you can call me a snitch if you want to. She said she wouldn't normally have called the sergeant about the use of force because it was beyond the scope of her duties. The head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, made an impassioned plea to the country as coronavirus cases continue to rise and even as increasing numbers of people are vaccinated. I'm going to lose the script and I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are and so much reason for hope. But right now I'm scared. 
Walensky said cases of the virus are up about 10 percent over the past week from the previous week to about 60,000 cases per day, with both hospitalizations and deaths ticking up as well. She warned without immediate action to slow the spread, the U.S. could follow European countries into another spike in cases and suffer needless deaths. She urged people to please limit travel to essential travel for the time being and to observe coronavirus precautions. More than 20 heads of government and global agencies have called for an international treaty for pandemic preparedness. They say will protect future generations. European Council President Charles Michel first laid out the idea of a pandemic treaty at the UN General Assembly in December. He followed up on that plea today, saying the coronavirus pandemic has taught the world a brutal lesson it must learn before the next pandemic. No country No continent can defeat a pandemic alone. It requires a global approach. The us rather than the me and a collective commitment at the highest political level. The next pandemic is not a question of if, but when. So we must be ready and we have no time to waste. Despite the World Health Organization's calls for patents to be waived during the pandemic, rich countries have continued to oppose efforts by poor countries to compel them to share vaccine manufacturing technology that would address worldwide vaccine scarcity. The vote counting begins today in the high-stakes union organizing drive at Amazon's massive facility in Bessemer, Alabama. The National Labor Relations Board is expected to take a few days to tally the nearly 6,000 ballots. Laura Ross-Sprout-Tellum reports. Nearly 6,000 employees are deciding whether they'll be the first of Amazon's 400,000 workers to join a union. The implications are big. If the workers vote to become members of the retail, wholesale and department store union, it'll be a huge victory for the labor movement, whose numbers have been dropping for decades. And if the union loses, it would force labor organizers to rethink their strategy, particularly in tackling big tech companies. Amazon union supporters say the pay in Bessemer does not adequately compensate for the constant pressure workers face, including high physical demands and minimal breaks. Amazon argues its $15 minimum wage is twice the state minimum, and it offers health insurance and other benefits hard to find in low-wage jobs. The union says about 85% of the warehouse workers are black and has linked the labor organizing to the struggle for racial justice. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Maura Rospratellum. Critics of Georgia's new Republican-backed election law have issued fresh calls to boycott some of the state's largest businesses. Leaders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Georgia are sending a letter to 90,000 parishioners. The letter calls for a boycott of Georgia's largest companies if they don't speak out more forcefully against the law. Bishop Reginald Jackson is calling for corporate leaders at companies like Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines to speak out in opposition. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. On May 25th, 2020, 46-year-old George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, Minnesota by white police officer Derek Chavin. Floyd, a black father of three and grandfather of two, was killed during an arrest after a store clerk claimed that he used a counterfeit $20 bill. 
uh, Chavin, one of the four police officers who arrived on the scene, handcuffed him and slammed him face down on the street. Three other officers, to Tao, Thomas Lane, and J. Alexander King, restrained Floyd, and another prevented passers-by from defending George Floyd. They have also been charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. Chavin proceeded to kneel on George Floyd's neck for what we now know was nine minutes and 29 seconds, preventing him from breathing. As he was pinned under Chavin's knee, George Floyd repeatedly cried out for help and said that he couldn't breathe. During the final two minutes of him being pinned down, George Floyd was motionless and had no pulse. The Minneapolis police took no immediate action to directly treat him, and Chavin kept his knee on Floyd's neck until medics arrived. Following George Floyd's murder, Chavin was fired and charged with second-degree murder. An additional charge of third-degree murder was later added. In the following weeks, protests and systemic racism and in solidarity with black lives erupted in cities across the United States and around the world. Protests began in Minneapolis, but quickly spread to over 2,000 cities and towns in over 60 countries, according to The Guardian. Some polls have estimated that as many as 26 million people participated in the protests. In major cities like New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., police um, suppressed uh, protesters, often in violent uh, ways. And in Portland, Oregon, Unidentified federal officers wearing camouflage used unmarked vans to detain protesters. The uprisings were also suppressed by violent right-wing militias, as exemplified by the bloody shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that resulted in the death of two protesters. By March 12th, Uh, 2021, the Minneapolis Police Council approved a settlement of $27 million to the Floyd family following a lawsuit. Now all eyes are back on the case of George Floyd and on systemic racism as a trial of Derek uh, Chauvin is underway. Chauvin's murder trial opening statements began on Monday, March 29th. This has become one of the most closely watched court cases in decades. The trial began with opening statements from both sides, establishing the groundwork for both legal teams as they present their arguments to the jury. Jerry Blackwell, the prosecuting attorney, turned the juror's attention to the viral video of George Floyd's arrest in which he is seen being choked to death by Chavin. During the first session, Blackwell reportedly said, you can believe your eyes that it's homicide, it's murder. Blackwell also told the jury that Chavez didn't let up and didn't get up even after George Floyd repeatedly complained that he couldn't breathe. Chavin's defense attorneys laid out their strategy as well, which many say will provide, uh, involve the jurors evaluating tons of evidence outside of the viral video. Um, before we welcome our first guest, let us go now to um, a reaction now from activists on the ground in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as the trial began. Hey, hey, ho, ho. Say Derek Chauvin has got to go. Hey, hey, 
You know, I really want to be optimistic, but I've been doing this for a long time. And so, unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm not feeling like, I don't want to hype myself up for justice, you know? I'm expecting to see George Floyd criminalized and potentially the officer walk. It seems like the city is expecting the worst or preparing for the worst. So that's what I encourage everyone else to do, prepare for the worst. Anything better than that comes, that'll be a pleasant surprise. I think what's different now is that the cameras are in the courtrooms. People, attention and eyes are on the injustices that we've been raising attention to. One of the things that the community is very cautious of is the fact that Officer Chauvin is on trial, not George Floyd. Came down here for justice and a conviction. I have my attorney prompt with me. We're here just hoping for the best. Alrighty, so let's welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Mick Crenshaw, who was born and raised uh, both in Chicago and uh, Minneapolis. He currently resides in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Mick is the lead U.S. organizer for the African Hip Hop Caravan and uses cultural activism as a means to develop international solidarity related to human rights and justice through hip hop and popular education. Uh, Mick is the Northwest Regional Director of Hip Hop Congress. Mick Crenshaw, welcome. Uh, thank you, Margaret. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm, I'm well and, and good to speak with you again. Um, now, uh, first, give us uh, your reaction. You heard uh, protesters out there on the ground. Of course, protesters in, in Portland have been, um, I, I think, perhaps the longest uh, stretch of protests following the George Floyd um, murder. But uh, give us your reaction. You know, some people are skeptical uh, about if justice is possible. Um, others are very hopeful. Um, what, what are your thoughts now as the trial begins? You know, on, on one end of the spectrum, we could say I'm cautiously optimistic, but Honestly, if I really check in with my gut feeling, um, it's more of an anxiety because I don't expect justice to be served. Um, I feel like the, the, the asymmetry of the court system in this United States, even though there's a number of black jurors, is something that impacts the way that people's decisions are made. Um, I, my heart goes out to the people on the ground who stand for black liberation and who stand against um, police terror, and who stand for justice for the people. Because I'm what I'm afraid and what a lot of me is predicting I'm going to see and that we're going to see as a country is um, a decision that falls short in terms of the type of justice that the people actually want. And it makes me think, Margaret, about some very simple, almost primal um things and that they were on that brother's neck they were on george floyd's neck for over nine minutes you know i've also learned how to do blood chokes that restrict blood to the brain through restriction of the carotid arteries i've been trained by people who train police officers who told me that 30 seconds will put you to sleep and three minutes will cause you to be brain dead they did that for nine minutes plus i would ask that Derek Chauvin have somebody do the same thing to him. And let's see what happens. And the other 
three or four cops who participated in the death of George Floyd. Um, lastly, I just want to say they're going to try to make this into uh, the defense is going to try to make this about uh, George Floyd's history of, of drug use. And if everybody who used drugs recreationally in this country um, deserved to be choked to death, then we would only have a, a minuscule fraction of the population. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what I'd like to do, Mike, if you're able to stay with us a, a few more minutes, um, if that's okay, I'd like to welcome a guest who is now based in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, uh, Kieran uh, Knudsen, who is president of CWA Local 7250, who has been active in protests in solidarity with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Kieran is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Kieran, thank you for for joining us. Okay, I'm not hearing Karen. Is he on the line? Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here with you and Mike. Okay, so um, a similar question uh, to you, uh, Karen. You're right on the ground in Minneapolis, and I'm wondering your thoughts as the trial begins. As I said, some people are cautiously optimistic. Uh, some people are skeptical. And as Mike says, all of us, probably black people across the nation, uh, other people of color, we're all feeling pretty anxious about this. Uh, Karen, your your thoughts? Yeah, I think that um, we have to understand that the only reason there are charges against Chauvin in the first place is because of one of the you know, biggest uprisings in modern history in the United States. So that's what it took to even bring charges against Chauvin and the other cops that murdered George Floyd in broad daylight on a city corner uh, with a crowd of people watching. So when we're talking about American justice, that's the first thing we have to understand is that's what it took to even get charges put against him. Um, I do think the system understands that millions and millions of people are watching this case and that there's a great risk to not delivering some kind of justice um, for this murder. But the only thing that can ensure that, I believe, is the continued vigilance of millions of people to make sure that we won't accept anything less. Right. And uh, what we'll uh, do now actually is just go, uh, Karen, to a clip of what happened in uh, Minneapolis of the George Floyd family and activists um, gathering outside the courthouse. They can't sweep this under the rug. Come on, George Floyd, Philando Castile, they were all killed by officers that were sworn to protect us. America is watching. Just like this press, many shows, court TV, they would display everything. Just like when this man had his knee on my brother's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. It was a motion cinema picture. Everybody's seen it. I was watching the video, not to, not to discuss myself or get myself furious. That was the last time I could hear his voice. You know, so I watched it, I watched it, I watched it. And every time I watched it, it seemed like it just got me, it made me a little, it made me stronger because I knew, yeah, they, they, they murdered him. 
but we still Floyd Strong, hmm. and we still here. So we gonna hold it down for him. You know what I'm saying? And they say trust the system. They want us to trust the system. Well, this is your chance to show us that we can trust you. Shaven is in the courtroom, but America's on trial. America's on trial to see if we have gotten to the place where we can hold police accountable if they break the law. They're going to talk about as much as they can about his record. But his record isn't an issue. All right. Because this is the trial of Derek Chauvin. We're taking a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And we want you to think of during that time why Shaven didn't in that time get his knee up. All righty. And then uh, just a short piece here, and then we'll get comments from both of you on the street scene uh, now on day one of the trial. Security personnel are on high alert during the trial. Protesters want to show Floyd's family support by calling for racial justice. David Schumann's live in downtown Minneapolis right now. David. The march is starting here right now as we speak after several speakers took the microphone and talked passionately about justice for victims of police violence and accountability for police. They also spoke to a crowd that is standing behind a banner in the street that says justice for George Floyd and all stolen lives. The organizers of this event here have made clear why they're out here protesting. Demanding a conviction of Derek Chauvin with the maximum sentence is first and foremost. There are also bigger picture systemic issues they're protesting for, like passage of police reform legislation and creating a community board to oversee police for greater accountability. One man said he feels nothing has changed in the last 10 months since Floyd's death, and he wants to know his family will be safe from police. About the trial, one of the organizers said she felt the first day went well for the prosecution. There's a strong sense of unity here. A lot of different groups coming together for this. And in fact, more than 20 Twin Cities organizations came together, teamed up to put this on. All right, so uh, Karen uh, Knutson, who is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, your thoughts first on this. I mean, in the first clip, you heard some of the words of the family and, um, you know, of saying we are still Floyd strong. Um, also, America is on trial. That was uh, Sharpton. And also um, people saying, you know, if you want us to trust the system, this is your chance to show it uh, to us. Um, your thoughts on that, and if that's very much the feeling on the ground, uh, Karen, and also um, if you feel anything has changed since uh, George Floyd's murder. I think that uh, people here um, very much have a lot of love and sympathy for the Floyd family and what they've been through. And uh, it's incredible to think about the sort of what they had to witness in terms of a loved one being, being lynched on video by state authorities. I don't think people here um, have confidence that the Minneapolis police department has changed. I think it's still, uh, it functions in a similar way. It's had to sort of scroll back. Um, its activity in the city uh, since the uprising in order not to provoke people more, but, but it still continually um, 
there still continues to be incidents of police brutality even since George Floyd was murdered. And so people don't have confidence in the MPD to be a tool of community safety. Um, it definitely is not has not regained its legitimacy in the city since the uprising. Yeah, and and also to uh, to ask you, um, Karen, because you know, I mean, millions of people uh, protested around the world. I think something like two thousand cities and towns over sixty countries. I mean, rural areas in the U.S. like Southern Illinois, but that formerly areas that were known as sundown towns. You had smallish protests, but nevertheless, they were happening there. Um, are you feeling now that perhaps a sense of complacency has set in or, or people's attention span has gotten a little shorter? Um, you know, because at least thus far, we haven't seen the turnout, at least in, in the numbers, as has happened um, after the initial uh, murder and and do you think that people are just kind of uh, waiting and seeing how this is going to unfold with the trial? Your your thoughts? I believe I believe you're right. I think people are waiting to see what will happen and seeing if any kind of justice is delivered through the court system. I mean, I think that is one of the functions of the court system is to, in the way it plays out in this country, is often to drag things out for a long time and take agency away from people in the streets. But in Minneapolis, the the area where George Floyd was murdered, 38th in Chicago, is an area both Mike and I know well. Um, That area is still occupied by people. There are still barricades up uh, in that neighborhood. There are still community meetings happening there uh, twice a day to help run what they call George Floyd Square. And police are still not welcome in that area. And um, that that still exists, you know, how many months, you know, nearly a year after George Floyd was killed. Um, similarly, there's other uh, militant movements within the city. There are uh, homeless encampments that were sprung up and self-organized by people without homes throughout the city in the wake of the uprising. So very much Minneapolis is still not back to what they call normal since the uprising. But it's true that the the mobilizations haven't been the same as they were after George Floyd was killed. And I think we'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, and Mike, um, just, you know, Portland, I mean, was in the news um, because of a lot of what happened there, the ongoing protests, the criminalization of a lot of the uh, protesters. And there was some concern that, well, some of the protesters perhaps had their own uh, agenda and it, it shifted away uh, accountability for the, um, the killing of George Floyd. But just your thoughts now, because, um, Mike, the whole demand of defund the police, um, that spread uh, seemed like a, a cane fire across the country. And you did have several cities uh, moving to try to do something about it. The the mayor of, of Portland, it seemed, was a, a, a very mixed bag, you know, on that front. Um, so just in terms of demands uh, coming up from the movement and how things are looking now on the ground in Portland itself um, of around justice for George Floyd. Mike? Yeah, there were, there were demands from activists here to defund um, the police um, anywhere from $200 million to $50 million. City Council voted on $18 million. I think there was 
a $15 million cut that was decided on. There was basically a gang violence reduction team focusing on um, handgun crime that was voted uh, to be reduced because their interactions were disproportionately harmful to the black community. Um, now there's a push to refund the police, and we're seeing that nationally. Activists here have, in the years since George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's uh, murders, have started to make a more concerted effort to connect the dots between uh, police terror, police brutality, the way the police treat black people and get away with murder, and the way that the state treats houseless people and more marginalized people um, who are facing abject poverty on the streets of our cities. And a lot of the Black Lives Matter protesters have gone out to try to prevent the sweeps and the raids on encampments of houseless people. Um, Portland has remained consistently active and resistant and in the streets um, throughout the course of the year with some short breaks due to extenuating factors. I'm expecting to see more of the same militancy this summer. Portland has also been um, a stage for some time now, and, and more intensely recently, a stage for the clashes between the extreme right and forces of Black Lives Matter, those who support the movement for Black Lives and anti-racist and anti-fascist. So I'm expecting to see more of those conflicts and clashes throughout the summer because, unfortunately, I do believe that the conditions we face as a society are, um, are going to be ones that manifest more police terror, more police murder of innocent people, of unarmed people, of black people, people of color. Right. And uh, Karen, it's in just uh, final thoughts uh, from you, you know, looking forward, we know all eyes are on, on the trial. You also talked about other kinds of organizing uh, going on uh, in uh, Minneapolis uh, around houseless uh, people, et cetera. But um, tell us how you see things moving forward. And also you're a union guy and you know, I, I noted a, a, a poll, a Pew poll that was done. I read an article this morning, I think it was reported in the Washington Post, that actually said that um, after January 6th, you know, the invasion of the, the capital of, of people basically trying to you know, stop the counting of the vote. A lot of violence there, um, deaths did happen, that among the Republican Party, actually people have remained steady, it seemed, in their support uh, for Trump. I mean, it's gone down a bit. He's no longer in the White House, but clearly he is still there and maintaining a presence and a hold, it seems, on the Republican Party. And I'm wondering how you see that uh, playing out uh, where you are and uh, just, you know, any final comments that you might have, uh, Karen Knudsen. Thank you. I think that in terms of the first part about the unions, I think that the unions just um, have not done what's needed to be done around George Floyd and so many other issues. I think that the unions tend to trail behind um, some politicians, and that's exactly backwards. Uh, instead of doing that, the union should have been out in the street with the protesters, should have been opening up our union halls to 
um, give aid and support to the protests, sort of been pushing the issue in the different workplaces where we have presence. And I think actually if the unions have been doing that in a consistent way and really arguing uh, that an injury to one is an injury to all, it would actually, uh, to deal with your second question, help undercut some of that support for Trump that still does exist amongst specifically white working class people. Um, because that support for Trump is clearly against the interests of regular working class people, but it persists basically based around, you know, racist, uh, identification with, with the white power system. And I think that the unions could be playing a very positive role in undercutting that. And unfortunately, I feel like the unions are, are still way far behind what they need to be doing. Yeah, a lot of work to be done there. And Mike Crenshaw, just your final thoughts and comment on this, because the defense in their opening statement seemed to blame the bystanders, the onlookers who were there for what happened, <laughs> right? Which is just amazing that that is, is part of, uh, you know, him saying that Chauvin, Chauvin is innocent. Your thoughts on that and any final words you have for us? Uh, let's continue to hold police accountable and question the necessity for overfunded police departments in our communities and um, examine whether they're actually a threat to our safety or an asset, whether they're actually a liability to our communities or an asset. And let's continue to organize for autonomous uh, ways of defending our communities and supporting each other through mutual aid um, so that we do not have to rely on the police as, as we have. Right. Well, on that note, we're going to continue to follow this. So I really hope, uh, Karen and Mike, that you will join us again as this trial continues. We're going to be following it very closely. Thank both of you for your work. Thank you for joining us. And y'all, please stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. All righty. We're going to take a short station break. And coming up, the people's attorney, uh, Nana Jumphy, she's going to weigh in on all of this. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't got you slipping now. Look how I'm living now. Police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. My area. I got the strap. I gotta carry them. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go get the bag. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we are worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud. Today, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our listeners in the UK, where they are up against a, a, a policing bill. They're protesting that are and and right 
riots actually that broke out in Bristol, England, uh, around some of these same issues of uh, policing. Uh, we are uh, doing in-depth look at what is happening now as the trial of the man, the police officer, uh, Derek Chauvin, who killed uh, 46-year-old George Floyd on May 25th, uh, 2020. And uh, here setting up, we're going to be hearing from uh, a woman known as the people's attorney, uh, Nana Jumphy. And to just set that up and, and to get her comments, let us go to some of the key moments from the defense's opening statement. Keep in mind, this is the defense now who is being backed um, by police organizations uh, with something like a dozen lawyers and a million dollars. Uh, let's hear what the defense had to say. I want to talk about reason and common sense and how that applies to the evidence that you're about to see during the course of this trial. Reason is an idea that wholly permeates our law, our legal system, and it forms the foundation. And you will see and hear that repeatedly throughout the course of this trial. What would a reasonable police officer do? What is a reasonable use of force? Common sense tells us that we need to examine the totality of the circumstances to determine the meaning of evidence and how it can be applied to the questions of reasonableness of actions and reactions. It is nothing more than that. There is no political or social cause in this courtroom. And you will see and hear everything that these officers and Mr. Floyd say to each other. You will see that three Minneapolis police officers could not overcome the strength of Mr. Floyd. Mr. Chauvin stands 5'9", 140 pounds. Mr. Floyd is 6'3", weighs 223 pounds. Mr. Floyd does end up on the street and appeared to continue to struggle to these officers, so much so that they considered applying what's called the maximal restraint technique. It used to be called the hobble or the hog tie. Mr. Chauvin used his knee to pin Mr. Floyd's left shoulder blade and back to the ground and his right knee to pin Mr. Floyd's left arm to the ground. You will see and hear that a crowd begins to develop watching and recording officers, initially fairly passive. As the situation went on, the crowd began to grow angry. And remember, there's, there's more to the scene than just the office, what the officers see in front of them. There are people behind them. There are people across the street. There are cars stopping, people yelling. There are there is a growing crowd and what officers perceive to be a threat. Well, let's welcome uh, Nana Jumphy back to Sojourner Truth, attorney, consultant, educator, activist. She is the president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. She's also the executive director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, known as Baji, Attorney Jamfi. She is known as the people's attorney by the communities uh, she serves. Uh, Nana Jamfi, thank you for joining us. Thank you so very much for having me, Margaret. 
Well, Nan, I know you're, you're, you're following this. And actually, in, in that clip, I mean, you heard the um, the attorney representing uh, Chauvin uh, calling it a hog tie. You know, he really didn't have to make that reference, but he did. I think that said quite a lot. And then again, the whole thing about the fear of the black body. You know, uh, Floyd is 6'3", 223 pounds. And after all, this poor little white police officer, he was only 5'9", and 140 pounds. Um, anyway, Nana, your reaction to what you just heard um, from the defense. So this is, you know, typical. It reminded me when I was hearing it of a police report that we had from a case here in Los Angeles when they had the um, celebration of the National Days um, in honor of Mike Brown in 2014. I'm sure, Margaret, you remember how there were folks who blocked the freeway, like the 10 freeway right there where the 101 is here in Los Angeles. And there were seven people, and one of them was a brother, tall brother, um, much in the, the George Floyd vein, uh, except he had locks on his head, so you know he was super scary to them. And uh, in the police report describing what happened, where it says weapons involved, they put physical presence, right? Throughout the report, they describe him as calm, as quiet, and yet they still put, this is LAPD, that his physical presence was a weapon. Mm. And I think that says it all, right? Um, black people... Um, are considered to be weapons just in their blackness. And so had George Floyd been four, you know, eight, <laughs> they still would have talked about his physical self, his physical stature as being a reason for us to believe that he was, you know, super strong, the savage who's able to throw police officers off of him with a single bound, right? And I think that it's important that we continue to lift up all of the ways in which this case, in which police violence speaks to the efforts by um, folks in this country to continue to deny the humanity of black people. You know, we don't feel pain. We can't be uh, subdued without extreme violence. We must be feared. All of that is just the rep repetition of, you know, the, the, what they've put out here um, about our folks and have used against us in the context of state violence and state-sponsored violence from the beginning. Yeah, and going back to uh, Thomas Jefferson, the so-named founding uh, father, um, who himself was a, a slave owner and a rapist of a 14-year-old uh, Sally Hemings that he had children um, with. But he was going on about uh, how black people, we just don't feel pain. And and, and also, we, we, we don't grieve the way white people uh, grieved. Meanwhile, they're snatching, you know, children that you've given birth to and, um, you know, sending them off. So that, you know, and, and even today, if you look at the disparity in health care among black people and, and the fact that if we're in pain, you go to the doctor and you're in pain, they just don't believe you. Or, the, you know, with uh, George Floyd saying, I can't breathe. And, and the response being, well, you know, you sure have enough breath to be saying what you're saying. You know what I mean? It's it's that really Absolutely. continuum that you're talking Absolutely. about, Nana. 
Absolutely, it's that continuum, and and so we shouldn't be surprised. And we know, I mean, this is not the first case, it's not the second, it's not the tenth. We already know before the defense counsel for Chauvin testified or spoke that his arguments, we already know what he's going to say. We already know. They've, or, they've set some of this up ahead of time in terms of, you know, discussing what could be, you know, why is it that, George Floyd could suddenly be some superhuman person that needs to, or really subhuman person that needs to be um, subdued. We've already gotten all of the um, prompts, not just from what we've seen happen in these cases, but from all these propaganda shows, right, that are permeate our TV screens. Um, that talk about all the things that reasonable officers need to do and how reasonable officers are in these situations. Um, It's all been set up, Margaret. It's all been teed up. And so it really takes an intentional effort, and it's going to take an intentional effort on the part of jurors to separate what we've been taught, to separate what we've been programmed, um, to separate what... um, they're being told by the defense from what they actually see, what they actually hear, what they actually know about what happened to our brother George Floyd. Yeah, and I mean, also the the treatment of, I mean, you know, I I always uh, go back to the shootings that happened um, in the church of uh, nine black people being killed and then the police officer uh, taking the young man responsible for, you know, to to Burger King or something, you know, to get him something to eat because he was hungry. And now this um, white guy who killed eight people, uh, including six Asian women outside Atlanta, now they're saying, well, you know, he's just mentally ill and, you know, he had a bad day and, you know, he had this these sexual hangups, you know, et cetera. So there's always that kind of excuse given. Meanwhile, with George Floyd, basically he was accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill. And for that, that cost him his life. Eric Garner accused of, of allegedly selling loose cigarettes, and that also cost him his life. So that kind of of double standard, I imagine, is part of what people are looking at to see is justice possible for black people uh, in the United States. And I, I, I wondered if you wanted to, to comment on all that as well. So I'm an abolitionist. What that means is that I don't want there to be police, I don't want there to be jails, and I don't want there to be prisons. I don't want yeah. that for me, for you, for our kids, or for Chauvin. I don't want that for anybody because it's like the death penalty. As long as one person gets killed under the death penalty, we know that it's disproportionately going to affect our people and that other people are going to be killed. And, and in the same way, for me and for those of us who are abolitionists, we can't say that we want to dismantle a system and then call on the system to step up. Um, I think that what those double standards clearly demonstrate is that, in fact, the police state is not what's going to keep black people safe. And it is a state that cannot be reformed. We're not going to reform the police. We're not going to, you know, train them differently. Again, Margaret, you and I have been in this a long time. Some of what people are talking about now, including what's in the Justice and Policing Act, are things from 30 years ago, from Christopher Commission, from community policing, that we already see are not going to work. They don't happen. 
and yet we kind of still expect that um, to happen, that someday cops are going to look up and treat our people um, um, humanely. That's not what they're designed to do. They are designed to treat black people as if they were escaped enslaved Africans, and they're going to continue to do that. And so there is no justice, no, that's going to be found in this system. And, you know, we need to be clear that this system needs to be dismantled, that we need to find a completely other way. That's another show. Um, But with respect to this case, as we're looking at this case, let's understand that justice is not going to be achieved, even if there's a verdict and Chauvin gets the maximum time that he could get at the highest charge possible. That will still not be justice. It will not change anything about policing. It will not change anything about the safety that, that black people feel and must feel with respect to policing. It will uh, be an individual situation that will have no systemic and institutional effect. Right. So what what you're talking about, uh, Nana Jumphy, uh, our attorney uh, here, the people's attorney, Nana Jumphy, is uh, a complete systemic change. And on the meanwhile, we know that George Floyd's family, there, there are many black people across the United States and around the world that are looking and are saying, well, justice itself is on trial in the United States. And is it uh, possible? You're saying that within this system <laughs> that we are under, this capitalist system that we're under, it's not really possible and that we have to look for alternative ways and that you're right, that is a totally other uh, show. But um, what about the demands about defunding uh, the police? There's a lot of misunderstanding about what that means. Um, That was a demand in in Minneapolis. And in fact, the Minneapolis City Council members had promised to dismantle the city's police department and create a public safety system. Now, that hasn't happened. And there was backtracking, you know, on that. But you have seen cities like uh, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Seattle, Milwaukee, uh, Philly, and others, uh, about a dozen cities that have initially reduced uh, police um, spending. And then you mentioned H.R. 7120, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that was introduced by Congresswoman Karen Bass in June of 2020. It passed the House. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens with it in the Senate. But uh, meanwhile, there are these interim measures of people really trying to uh, do something to, to try to save the lives of black people. The thoughts on this, Nana? And there are many efforts. Some of them are efforts, I think, that are moving us in the, the direction of abolition, such as the efforts that have made up in Oakland, where they were able, Cat Brooks and the Anti-Police Terror Project and another project that they're working with, with um, nurses and other medical folks there, have been able to get the city of Oakland to agree to enter a contract um, with community groups and community organization to take cases or to take calls that are dealing with, for example, mental health breakdowns. And so that is actually moving something away from the police. It's not police-like. It's not diet police. It is totally community-ran. And so we do see that. I think that there the other efforts, or there are many efforts, including the Justice and Policing Act, 
some of the efforts to defund in L.A. and other places that really are more reform-oriented, meaning that at the end of the day, they serve to try to create a legitimized police force, like a sanitized police force, a kinder and gentler police force. And so obviously for those of us that want no police force, that's not the direction we're trying to go in. We're trying to go into a dismantling space. Um, I think with respect to the defund in particular, the moving of funds away from the police really has, you know, doesn't have a lot of effect unless it also includes the moving of funds in ways that defang the police. In other words, take away these weapons, you know, demilitarize, um, and in ways that dismantle, actually dismantling projects and programs. People would be surprised how many programs that are supported by their city, their county, their state, have police pieces in them that become part of the law enforcement budget. And so until we actually begin to defang the police, to remove the police uh, from these spaces in the process of dismantling as well as defunding, we're still going to find ourselves in spaces in which the police are alive and well, continuing to do what they were created to do. Yeah, and uh, just quickly, we're almost out of time there, but a couple of things on the international front. Um, it's been reported of a, a Salvadoran uh, woman, a, a migrant, who was killed in Mexico by Mexican police in a similar way of George Floyd, you know, the the, the knee on the neck. And uh, meanwhile, in the UK, there are protests today. There have been about people against a police bill of increasing uh, the powers against the police. So it, it does seem that what happened happens here in the United States and and the, the kind of widespread uh, protests that happen as a result of George Floyd has had um, a ripple effect in bringing out what is happening to some of our brown sisters and brothers in the United States, but also outside of the United States and other parts of the world. Uh, just your final uh, thoughts here, Nana. So I would say that if we look in those places, Mexico, if we look at Britain, if we look at Brazil and other places, people have always been on the ground fighting, right? And so, um, you know, at, at, with respect to the police, there have been rebellions in England, as you know. There have been, you know, just talks of this, uh, what's happening with the police in Mexico and Central America, South America, the continent of Africa, and SARS, right? All of that. So I don't think it's new. I think that there is often an attempt. To, for, by the United States to make itself the standard, and that many folks follow the U.S. in terms of making the standard. But I think that, you know, the, the push of revolution, the push of the, of the people on the ground against the tyranny of the police is not a U.S.-rooted thing. It's not something that you just see here, but something that we're seeing all over the world. And I think people are just making more connections as we have the technology and other pieces to make that happen. Right, and we saw that in the uprisings in Nigeria as well. Well, we're out of time, but Nana, I do promise we will uh, come back and do, focus on abolition and, and what it means and hope to have you back and Ruthie Gilmore and other people who are part of that abolitionist movement because there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and questions on that. But we appreciate you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for joining us, Nana Jumphy. Thank you so much. Thank you. All righty. We... 
are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the assistant producer, Romero Funes, our audio engineer, Gary Baca. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. want to thank all of our guests and thank you for listening. And y'all, please stay safe. Yeah.